This morning, as we continue on the names of Jesus, we come to a, a series of names that we'll cover this week and next week, and we'll, we'll try to cover actually a number of names, four names today. So don't panic, we'll move through them pretty quickly. But these are names that, that deal with the Godhood of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is the everlasting God. He is part of the Godhead and part of the Trinity. And this morning I just start with a simple statement, who Jesus is matters. Who Jesus is matters. Because if if Jesus was not God, then on the cross as he hung there, he didn't pay for all of our sins, he paid for his own sins. He paid for one man's sin. If Jesus isn't God, then we should be watching football right now. And, And we're wasting our time. It matters. Or baseball, but that's later today. Um, <laughs> go Dodgers. But um, okay. Um, <laughs> who Jesus is matters. It's why we're here. And, and if you think about it, it is the key element, one of the key elements to our faith. It's a foundational principle. When you talk with people that are involved in cults and different religions, one of the questions that is foundational to come back to that differentiates Christianity from every cult that I've talked to so far is who is Jesus? Is he an uncreated part of the Godhead? Is he God or was he some created being or did he take on Godhood attributes or has he from eternality been God Almighty because he is God? Who he is matters. Parents, you may have seen some of this with your kids who they think they're talking to matters, right? There's times I'll come in on on my two boys, so I don't even have to give names. You know who that is. Coming in, I come into my two boys. I need to tell them to do something. And I walk in the room and they're in the middle of discussion. They don't see me walk in. And in the middle of the discussion, I say, hey, could you go take out the trash? And I've had this where Mark will start to turn and say, don't you tell me what And there's this look of sheer horror on his face. (laughs) Who was doing the talking mattered. He thought it was his younger brother. And the the weird thing about oldest children, they don't like it when their younger siblings tell them what to do. Fair enough. (laughs) I see some of you oldest nodding your heads. And so he's responding as if Jeffrey is talking. And I'm standing there and he realizes he just said what he should never say to dad. And so we have a little chat about that, a little bit of of correction and instruction. In our faith, understanding that Jesus is God matters. It, It changes how we interact with him, how we worship him, how we sing about him. Whether or not the claim that we often say that he should be central to our lives even makes sense. If he's not God and we make him central to our lives, we are idolaters. And so this is foundational doctrine. This morning we're not going to have time to delve into all the intricacies of that doctrine. There's so much we could talk about. But we want to hit some of the names that remind us of that doctrine, that remind us of who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. God's message come to earth. His salvation come to earth in the flesh. Starting point has to be the Gospel of John. When we talk about the Godhood names of Christ, we have to start with the name, the Word. We'll look at four names this morning. The Word, the Author of Life, the Holy One, and the Beloved. 
But we start with the Word, and so turn with me to John chapter 1, 1, and we'll spend probably half our time in this passage and then look at the other names. But this passage is just such a rich passage when we come to the Godhood names of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible today, you're welcome to grab one of the black Bibles that's underneath the chairs. And, and if you don't own one, take that home with you as our gift. We want everyone to have the Word of God. But John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's interesting to see how the different Gospels start. Matthew and Luke, they jump right into to the birth narrative, right? And the genealogies and, and, and showing how Jesus was born. Mark just jumps into ministry and the servanthood of Jesus. John starts, because, starts with the deity of Christ. Because his purpose of his Gospel is to show that Jesus is God. And so we start right in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You guys heard that before? It's a standard passage, a a beloved passage. I love this passage. So we want to tear that apart this morning a little bit, break it down, dive into it. First thing you notice is the name of Christ that is given is the Word. The Word. In Greek, that's logos. And it meant words or communication, but more specifically, communication of a thought or an idea. It was communicating a message. And it's interesting that Jesus was called this because he hadn't been called this before. And, and he's, John is using this word to help give us an understanding of Jesus' mission and his purpose and his relationship with God the Father. At the time when they heard this word, the Greeks used logos as not only a spoken word, but as some sort of reason that controlled the universe a rational principle that guided all things. And so they had personified reason, and that was the word. The Jews had personified wisdom of God, and it sometimes stood for God, Logos, God the Father. Sometimes it just meant the wisdom of God. So we had two completely different views of this word. And so John's going to spend some time explaining it and helping them understand who Jesus Christ is. In the Old Testament, we see the Word of God, that phrase, and not as a title, but just the Word of God came to so-and-so, used over 1,200 times. And it always referred to a revelation or a message from God. And here we come to, to after the, the intertestamental period, the time of silence, people are waiting for a message from God. And John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, Jesus is the special revelation and communication of God, of His character, of His rescue plan, because He is God. So let's read actually all five verses at the beginning and then break it down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, had noticed the the pronouns used, um, not it like you would have for the Word, but He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, beautiful doctrine. Beautiful theology there. First thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is we see a description of the Word's relationship to God the Father. The Word's relationship to God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a couple things as we look at each of those phrases. In the beginning was the Word. And this, John is, is declaring here that Jesus has been eternally existing. Before creation, Jesus existed. 
The word existed. The, the, the way that that verb is used there, it's an imperfect word, which means continuing action. And so if you had to translate it in sort of a, a, a wooden way, not the way we'd talk, but it's in the beginning, the word was continuing. So it had always been, it was continuing to go. And John is making a point here that Jesus was not created. Jesus didn't suddenly appear in existence at the incarnation. Jesus always was and always is. He precedes us. He has priority over us. The only person that this description could apply to is God. And so John here, right from the very first phrase, is saying Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. Next phrase, and the Word was with God. And that's an interesting phrase. As I've memorized this verse and used this verse, sometimes, I have to confess, sometimes that middle phrase was sort of a throwaway phrase for me. Okay, we're sort of progressing the argument. He was in the, I get that he was preexistent. He was in the beginning. And, and the last phrase, that he, he is God, he, he was God, is amazing. But what do you do with that middle phrase? He was with God. And there's a couple things there because it shows that the word was and is in a close relationship with God the Father. The word was and is in a close relationship with God the Father. A couple of things about theology you get there. One is that the word Jesus and God the Father are distinct persons. And when we talk about our doctrine of the Trinity, we believe that the Trinity is God three in one, three distinct persons that have the essence and unity of God. And so we, we could dive into that, but, but what's, what's even more interesting about that is that word with. You're like, okay, we're picking out words like with this morning. But the, the word with there in the Greek had this idea of toward, or it was used for face to face. Now, if I was to ask Phil to come up here and say, we're going to talk face to face, what does that mean? We're going to talk with each other. And that's why we get the, the translation with. But it, it, the word is used of relationship, a face-to-face relationship. And so one of the things that John is saying here, the word was with God. He was toward God. They were in relationship with each other from all eternity. Isn't that great? I love that. And so we see that not only was the word preexistent, eternally existent, but he was and is in a close relationship with God the Father. We get a picture into part of the Trinity that there is a relationship between members of the Trinity. There is a love, and we're going to see that a little bit later. And then finally we get to the third phrase, which is just uh, this powerful phrase, and the word was God. So we see the word was and is fully God. He's the very essence of God the very person of God. And, and I, I, I was thinking as I came, okay, how can I just easily explain the Trinity? You can't. It, it's this mind-blowing, mind-boggling concept of three in one. But we know that the Word and God the Father are distinct. They have always been, but they are in the very essence the same. They are both fully God. And so we're dealing with just powerful, powerful doctrine here. John goes on to reiterate that in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. From all times they are together and in relationship. Jesus is God. And it matters. 
we go, we go on in the passage. That's his relationship with God, the relationship of the Word to God. Then we have the relationship of the Word to creation. Verses 3 and 4. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see John says not only is the Word Jesus Christ, he's God, but he created all things. Everything was made through him. In fact, without him, nothing was made. And it's a grand statement of his authority, of his power as creator. It again shows the divinity of Jesus Christ. We talked about El Elohim when we, got, we talked about God the Father as creator God. And here John is equating Jesus with that same creator God because they are one and the same. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we read, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That pretty much covers it, right? Everything was created by God, by Jesus and for him. And he, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together catch a couple things in the colossians verse we said we read and in him all things hold together back in the john passage where you see in verse four in him was life and life was the light of men and you get this idea that jesus is the author of life which we'll get to in the next name that he is the sustainer of life he is the source of life this is no ordinary man not even a good man or a good teacher he is god almighty And so we see in the first four verses the Word's relationship to God, the Word's relationship to creation. And then we're going to skip down verses 14 and read from there, and we see the relationship of the Word to humanity. We've seen that He's fully God, but in 14 we see that He's fully man. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's just stop there for a minute. The Word became flesh. That is an incredible statement. That that word for flesh is a word that meant not just a physical body, but the soul, the whole person, the very nature man. And, and here we get to the, the two natures of God that he's, of, of Jesus, that He's fully God and fully man, and again, something that just blows our mind. But He became human. He took on human form. He became flesh. I love what Pastor Andrew says about that when he um, talks about carne as flesh. And we, we, you know, when we go to Los Sanchez, we want carne asada. Oh yeah, it's good stuff. Incarnation uses that word that Jesus came in the flesh. What a great way to remember what incarnation meant. But then the verse goes on, and dwelt among us. And, and the word there is tabernacled or tinted among us. He didn't just come down in the flesh to his castle, to his his palace, and rule from a distance. He dwelt among us, side by side. How many of you went on the camping trip? Okay, about half the church was on the camping trip, and there was various locations of people camping. There was Tent Trailer Row, and um, then there was sort of the exclusive area with some of the bigger RVs. (laughs) And then there was Tent City, right? Now, in Tent City... Was there a lot of privacy? You had visual privacy through this little tiny material, right? You could hear everything around you. 
You're living side by side. You're tabernacling. You're tenting together. And you're just living life together. And this idea is that God Almighty came in the flesh and He's living life with us. He is in our presence here to reach us with God's message. What an amazing testimony that is to who God is. Jesus came fully God and became fully man. He was in all points tempted as we are. He understands everything we go through. He came to share God's message with us. Think back to the name, the Word. Okay, that's what John is using here, the Word. The message of God, the revelation of God. And and he's using that name very specifically with these grand doctrines to say, God loved us so much that He took His message and He came to earth as man so we'd get it right. So we'd hear the message so we can understand it. You know, we, we, we have experience with like the telephone game, right? Have you guys played that where one person passes the message to the next and one per- and next and next and next? And by the end, it is nothing like the, the beginning message because we get the message wrong. And so God Almighty says, I'm going to send my son. You're going to see me because he's going to live with you and he will reveal my nature, my character, my plan of salvation. What an amazing thing that is. God is not distant, but he personally dwells among us. The Jews that were hearing this would have also thought of the tabernacle. Because as they wandered through the wilderness, whenever they'd set up camp, they'd set up the tabernacle and all of the the tribes would set up their camp around it. And the tabernacle was the center point because that was to represent the presence of God in their midst. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The presence of God in our midst. And we have seen His glory, the verse goes on, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see that the message that he comes with is truth and it's grace, both part, both things that we should think of when we think of the Word. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Talking about the pre-existence of Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Think about that verse for a minute. The context here is the Word. God bringing His message, His revelation to us in the flesh. For from His fullness, He's fully God, we have all received grace upon grace. Abundance of grace. Grace poured out on us. Grace that we can't get enough of. And we need God's grace. We talked about that last week. Every one of us is in desperate need of God's grace. And the message and the method was through the person of Jesus Christ. The passage goes on to say, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So the truth of the Word is that the incarnation makes God known to us. Up until this point, we get glimpses of who God is and glimpses of the supernatural. Windows into heaven. With Jesus, you get someone you can eat with and talk to and touch the scars. 
God in the flesh. A perfect revelation of God because He is God. He took all those things and summarized them. The Word existed before all things in a close relationship with God and is fully God. He created all things and is the source of life and then became human to reveal God's grace and truth and salvation. One author wrote, He perfectly revealed the invisible God, uttered God's mind, declared His purpose, and mediated His power. The very functions of every word, which is why His title is Word. I hope we don't get tired of this title. It's not just some other name for Jesus, but it's the revelation of God through Jesus. There's a couple of other verses you can look up. 1 John 1, 1, he's the word of life. And John again starts his epistle the same way and calls Jesus the word of life. But then in Revelation 19, we see the name word used again of God and the, and the revelation of God bringing grace and truth Grace leading to salvation, but truth also involves judgment for those that don't accept who Jesus is. Because who Jesus is matters. And for those that don't accept that He is God and don't give their life to Him, we see the end in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and His head... On on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, referring to his crucifixion. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The message of God to us. The truth of God. And that truth demands a response one way or another, because who Jesus is matters. Either I accept his claims, either I accept the, the Word of God that he is Christ, that He is God Almighty and that He brings salvation, or I reject it and have to, re- have to endure the results of my sins. Praise God for the Word. A couple of implications, just thoughts about this. The first is, through Jesus, God pours His grace on us. And that, we already read verse 16 there. Grace upon grace, grace heaped on us. Through Jesus, God pours His grace on us. And the questions that come out of that is, am I pursuing a relationship with God then? Am I pursuing Jesus? Am I making Him center? Am I just so in in love with Him that I am making Him my only priority? You might come to church and this might be a great social time, a great chance to get together. and might be, man, they talk about Jesus a lot. Yeah, Jesus is everything. He's the Word. When I think of how much grace Jesus has poured out on me, one of the other parts of this implication is how much grace am I willing to show others? See, here's the thing. If I haven't been touched by Jesus' grace, I will struggle to show grace to others. I will struggle with criticism. I will struggle to to love other people because I haven't experienced God's perfect grace. I haven't had a new heart that we talked about last week. I haven't been changed by Him. But John here ties grace and truth to the Word. That Jesus is the message of God's grace. And if I know Him, I will be characterized by His grace. 
How do I talk to people? What kind of words do I use? How often do I honk my horn while I'm driving? My kids call me the honker man sometimes. I'm working on it. Working on showing God's grace. I know it's a silly little thing. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wrote this. To know Jesus is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. grace, And to know him perfectly is eternal life. Do you know the word? Have you been impacted by the word, the message of grace and truth? Second implication there is it just flows right out of it. Study Jesus, know God. If Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is, then we should be studying him, studying his word, knowing him and knowing God. Second name we want to talk about this morning flows right out of verse 4. Verse 4 said, in him was life. And one of the names that is used of Jesus in the New Testament is the author of life. Very similar to some of the things we've talked about in in creation. But turn to Acts 3.15, just over um, the next book. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And we see Peter preaching here. And Peter's letting people know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and they need Jesus. And, And he uses a couple of names that are familiar here, starting at verse 14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Oh, that had to sting. Speaking of their Messiah. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And what an amazing statement there as he calls Jesus the author of life, but he's using it in an incredibly ironic way. He's the author of life. He's the creator of life. The originator of life. He's the source of all life. And you killed him. So how do you think that worked out for you? I I can just picture, I'm I'm interpreting a little bit, but there's some sarcasm here. You killed the author of life, and then we know how it worked out, whom God raised from the dead. If he's the author of life, do you think a little cross is going to stop him from living? No, he created all life. He's the source of all life. And we start to get this picture of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. He didn't stay dead. How could he? And then he goes on to say, and, and, and oh yeah, we're, we're all witnesses of that. We saw him. He appeared to most of us. We touched him. We ate with him. He's not dead. You have a problem. This is his message to try to shake them up and turn them to Christ. I love it. He's going after them. They're asking how this man was healed, and he goes on in 16. And his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, the author of life, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And Peter uses this name to remind them that Jesus is the author of all life. And he's the author of both physical life and spiritual life. He has the power over both. And we see the power over physical life with things like Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, raising from the dead. But we also see the power over spiritual life. In Hebrews 12, 2, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that word for founder there is the same as the author of life. He's the author of our faith, the author of our spiritual life, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the author of life. That gives him all authority over life, both physical life and spiritual life. You know, we, we joke about that as parents, right? I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. Now, I've never used that and make another one just like you. Now, I know none of you would ever say that to your children and none of you would ever put that into practice. But what are we tapping into? We're tapping into the authority of the author of life, right? So when Peter says Jesus is the author of life, he really is the author of life. He is the one with all authority. He is the one that can bring the dead back to life. He is the one more, the the more difficult thing that can bring the spiritually dead back to life. That can make us in right standing with God. In John 14, 6, another familiar passage, but think about this with the names of God. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the life village jesus is our life we need to center on him and focus on him in john 11 jesus said to to martha i right before he's about to raise lazarus and show that lazarus and show he has power over physical death he says i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die he shall live and he's talking about spiritual life there and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this i love that ending Do you believe Jesus is the life, the author of life? John 3, 16 and 17, familiar verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the author of life. A couple of implications and applications out of this. The first is Jesus is the only way to a full and abundant life. Jesus is the only way to a full and abundant life. And I'm not talking about being rich with with material wealth here on earth. I'm not talking about having everything I want. When we define abundant life that way, whose standard are we defining it by? Me, my comfort, who I am. And, And where does that always lead? To disaster to failure. When I'm pursuing me, when I'm pursuing my own comfort, it always fails. The only way to a full and abundant life is through Jesus Christ. And yes, that's hard sometimes. And yes, that takes sacrifice sometimes. But it's the only life that lasts. In John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly to the full. Jesus wants us to revel in life in Him, to experience the joy that only He can give. The joy that knows that our sovereign God is handling every trial and every problem and everything that comes my way. And I don't have to worry. I just have to trust. That's part of an abundant life, a content life. In Romans 6, 4, we read, For we we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because of Christ's work, we can have newness of life. Abundant life. This hits so home in our culture and with how we pursue life. Because so often, don't we pursue what we think will make us happy? Because we've elevated happiness. After all, our country's constitution says that's a right. And so we've elevated happiness above all other things and we pursue whether it be the job we want and the money we want because we think we'll be content and we think we'll be happy or the toys we want or the vacations we want or the trips we want. None of that leads to a fulfilling, abundant life. Only in the person of Christ, in a relationship with Him, can that happen. Because He's the author of life. The name says it. And we try to chase so many other things that have nothing to do with life. And that leads to the second application. We need to kill off the things that are not from Christ in our lives. We need to kill off the things that are not from Christ in our lives. Let me read Colossians 3. And Colossians 3 puts this concept of life and Jesus being the author of life with what we need to put aside. In Colossians 3 verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. So if Christ is our life, if he is the author of life and newness of life for us, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. So looking back to Christ is our life. So put to death, what is earthly in you, the things that are, are of death to you. This fallen Genesis 3 world is not worth holding on to. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so this list, we, we often focus on the list, right? This list of things, oh, Jesus is a killjoy again. I can't do all these fun things. But Jesus says, those aren't fun things. They don't lead to an awesome life, a fulfilling, abundant life. They lead to death and moral decay and hurt and pain. He made us. He's the author of life. He knows what life looks like. And in his love, he says to stay away from these things so that Christ can be our life. That's why we obey for that abundant life or to be part of that abundant life with Christ. Not to follow some legalistic set of rules. Jesus is the author of life. He's the Word, the Logos, the author of life. And two more names. The next one is the Holy One or the Hagias. The Holy One. And we've talked about this with God the Father. I think AJ talked that week on... Um, that this is a name for God the Father in the Old Testament, but it's a name for Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And if you remember, holy means to be consecrated or set apart. has the idea both to be set apart for a task and also to be pure for a task. So it has to do with the, the task and the, the attitude, the character behind the task. For the Jews, holy one would also mean Messiah and would have these messianic overtones. Turn to John 6. Back to John. John chapter 6, verse 68. 
And it's no surprise that John, proving Jesus is God, hits, one, hits more of the Godhood names of Christ. In John chapter 6, verse 68, 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we see the, the author of life there. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And he declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, come to give eternal life to those who believe. The Holy One of God. See, Holy One is a reminder of of Christ's life-giving work on the cross. It's a reminder of his resurrection. It's a reminder of everything he came to do and that he was the right person to do it. In Acts chapter 3, a passage that we just read, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Same name is used. In Acts 13, the same name is used. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, quoting Psalm 16.10, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So whenever we see holy one with Jesus, it's a reminder of his life-giving work on the cross, his resurrection. It's Simon Peter starting to realize who he was that he is the author of life, and so he calls him the Holy One of God. The Holy One also has authority. And, and in all of these Godhood names of Christ, we see authority just, just melted in and, and infiltrating every one of these names. In Mark one twenty four, we, we jump into Jesus' ministry, and he comes across a demon-possessed man, and Mark here is showing that Jesus has authority over the demonic, over the forces of evil. And... and They meet, and the demon says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so the Holy One is His authority, His power over evil and death. He's been set apart to conquer evil and death on the cross. As we mentioned, God the Father is also the Holy One in the Old Testament. Jesus is God. You can delve a little bit more into Holy One if you go back and listen to the the message where we spent a little more time expanding that. But there's some implications out of this one that are really powerful as we look at the, the New Testament. The first is to know your identity. Know your identity. We've talked about this before, especially as we start a lot of our series on books of the Bible. What does Paul often call believers in a church? Saints, right? Saints. And we've talked about that, of realizing my identity is I'm a saint. Even if I blow it today because of the the holiness of God, because of his death on the cross, his payment, I am a saint before God. And, And the word there for saints is the same word. It's the same root, hagios. We're called holy ones. And it's it's not because I'm so good. It's not because I'm so great. It's because of Christ's holiness. Because Jesus is the holy one, I can be holy through him. Just like we talked about righteousness last week, that Jesus is our righteousness. He is our holiness. But we've got to know our identity. We've got to wake up every morning and say, I am a saint I'm a holy one of God because I believe in Jesus Christ and he, he paid for my sins on the cross and I'm going to act like a saint today. Not like something else. 
And it changes how we act. It changes how we treat each other when we start to realize we're in a room full of saints, holy ones, who are made holy not by their own actions, but by the actions of Jesus Christ. And the second implication there is be holy as he is holy through the Holy One. Be holy as he is holy through the Holy One. In 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 19, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Skipping to verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so Peter says, be holy, but because of the precious blood of Christ, who had no blemish or spot, who was the Holy One. And so we see these beautiful Godhead names of Christ. He's the Word, God's message to us, living with us, of salvation, of truth, of grace. We see that Jesus is the author of life and the only source of a real meaningful life, no matter what we try to pursue here. We see that he's the Holy One, the Messiah who came to save us from our sins. Last name today we want to look at is the Beloved. The Beloved. And and this, I love this name to to end today and to sort of encapsulate all that we've talked about. The Greek word is agapao, which we, we know as agape love, right? A perfect love. Agapao is one that is loved, one that is dearly loved. And so when Jesus is called the beloved, he is the dearly loved one. And God the Father is often calling him that, but it became just one of his names. Flip over a few books to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with with which he blessed us in the beloved. We see that name for Jesus there, the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, now get the context of this name. In verse 5, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about our adoption. That we have been called by, by God. We have been predestined to his adoption as sons, to inclusion in the family, to acceptance into the family. And then very intentionally in verse 6 then, it uses the name the Beloved. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We're in the one that is dearly loved by God. And get this connection, because this is exciting to me. Jesus is God's beloved. You and I are adopted into Christ. We're adopted into the family through Christ. And as we live in Christ, we participate in in that love from from God the Father. Because Jesus is the beloved, we are dearly loved when we are in Christ. This isn't just a sterile faith. This isn't just, oh, I, I, I come to church on Sunday. We are loved as Jesus is loved by the Father. 
the one loved by God has offered us a way to be reconciled and a way to be in relationship with God, to be loved as beloved sons and daughters. And so this is a title that gives us insight into the relationship between the Father and the Son like we talked about in the first title. But it also gives us insight into the relationship between the Father and us if we're adopted as co-heirs. We see this title used a couple of other places. In, In Matthew 3 and in Matthew 17, we see it at the baptism of Christ when God the Father calls Jesus His beloved Son. We see it at the transfiguration when God the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And His beloved Son came to give His life on the cross so we could be beloved sons and daughters of the King. That is amazing and encouraging. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we read, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you see phrases like, This is my beloved Son, see God's delight in His Son. When we, when we see that we are adopted as sons and daughters, see God's delight in us, that we are dearly loved. A couple of implications as we think about the name the Beloved. Jesus is the object of the Father's infinite love, and because we are in Christ, we too are the object of God's love, what we just talked about. But I wanted to add in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. Remember what kind of love we're talking about. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the Beloved. And nothing can separate us from that kind of love from the Father if we believe in Jesus Christ and give Him our life. One other, just a real practical application out of this. Dads, I think we see a great example in God the Father of how to love our children. I just challenge you dads this morning. Do your children know that they are your beloved children? If God the Father was willing to let Jesus know that, are we willing to let our kids know that they are beloved children? I don't care if they're grown, if they're at home, if they're babies. What are you doing to show that kind of love to your children, to show grace and truth? But I want my kids to know that I love them because I'm showing them how God loves His Son and how God loves us. And dads, this is huge because if we don't show that to our kids and and they come and start reading about God the Father and how much God loves us, they'll be like, I don't get it. I don't understand. But we have the ability to show our children God's love through our actions. Don't let today end without telling your kids that they are your beloved children. Make sure they know that.
it might feel awkward and they're like beloved that's a weird word dad so explained it to them dearly loved i tried this with with my kids this week and at first they're like what does that mean and then they just snuggled they just snuggled because they respond to that love just like we respond to god's love four godhood names of christ each with different aspects of who he is, what his work is, all of them point to he is God, and it matters. Who Jesus is matters was how I started today. He's the word, God's message of life to us. He's the author of life. He's the beloved one. He's the holy one. Let's worship him and praise him. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, May we never get tired of praising Jesus, of proclaiming your name, of proclaiming your work of salvation, of singing songs like the glorious Christ, and we cling to Christ because you are God. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for loving us deeply, for making us your beloved children. Thank you for being the Holy One, the Messiah, who is set apart to bring salvation, who lived a perfect and pure life so you could take the sins of all of us on you on that cross. What an amazing God. All we can do is worship. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.